Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Well, good morning, church. That was an exciting video. Tell you, we have so much going on here. Hold on, buckle in. It's going to be an exciting fall, I believe, as we are doing ministry together. You know, um, over, in recent years, church, we've seen an uptick in Christian uh, deconversion or deconstruction uh, stories. Uh, for example, several celebrity musicians within the contemporary Christian movement uh, uh, have walked away from the faith that they have uh, sung about and talked about from stage, and they do it in a very public, very public way. Uh, it has become fashionable uh, for different celebrities as they... Uh, leave the faith to post that they are now ex-evangelicals instead of evangelicals. Uh, pastors, prominent pastors uh, like Joshua Harris um, have experienced uh, a deconstruction where their doubts finally win the day. Doubts that are produced oftentimes by legalistic forms of Christianity that they have been raised in and participating in, or doubts that are produced by the inability to reconcile the very uh, evil, hard word, world that we live in with what the Bible teaches, that God is a God of love and that he's good and that he's sovereign over the world. And so the, the tension between those two things create doubt that has led many to walk away. For others, it's doubts that are produced by the claims of, um, of the Bible, which run contrary to modern scientific or psychological or sociological dogma. And because of those disconnects, they walk away. Now, I'm, I'm not here this morning in my sermon to castigate or criticize uh, those who have experienced this in their lives, not at all. In fact, uh, Philip Ryken, who writes a wonderful book about uh, the Gospel of Luke, says, even if we ourselves have not abandoned the Christian faith, we can understand how this could happen. We, too, have had our doubts. There are times when our faith falters, when the whole story of salvation suddenly seems quite improbable, if not impossible. We still believe in Jesus, but sometimes it is hard to know for sure. The book of Luke is written for anyone who has doubts or has had doubts or will have doubts. That pretty much covers all of us. Right? Uh, in fact, you know, the Apostle John, he wrote the Gospel of John and his first epistle, 1 John, so that people could know, know for sure on this question of Jesus and salvation. And he wrote 1 John for doubters, for example. And so Luke does the same thing with the Gospel of Luke and, by extension, the book of Acts, because he wrote both of them. And so for the next year or more, I'm copying our building. When are we going to move in? In a year. Oh, okay, now it's maybe a year or more is what it's going to probably be. Uh, probably around 50 messages. Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. 
So it's going to take us a little bit to get through it, okay? But we will get through it, and we'll have breaks uh, for different reasons so that you can have a little bit of relief. But it's going to take us a while, but we are going to take our time, and we're going to go through this book, and we're going to examine and study the portrait of Jesus that Luke paints for us. So let's begin right there. Let's meet the author. We call him Dr. Luke, or Luke the physician. Historically, this gospel is credited to Luke, even though he doesn't say in the very beginning, he doesn't identify himself in the opening verses that it's Luke who's giving this book. But we are able to do this by connecting some dots within the New Testament scriptures. So for example, at the very beginning of the book of Acts, you see the same person Theophilus appealed to. So the writer of the Luke and Acts was the same person, and he's doing it for the benefit of Theophilus. And he says, Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach in the first book until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so the, this gives us kind of a clue what's going on here. The person who wrote what we call the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Acts, is the same person because they're doing it for the benefit of Theophilus. The, the books are so long, it, it's, it's kind of interesting. There, there, there's many who believe that it was all intended to be just one gospel. But it was so long, scrolls of that day could only hold so many words. And so he had to do volume one and volume two. And so volume one ends with the ascension of Jesus Christ, the book of Luke. The book of Acts starts with the ascension of Jesus Christ. You'll remember that we went through the book of Acts a couple of years ago. And so at, at this point, we don't know who wrote it. But in chapter 16, we see a change. Uh, chapter 16, the book of Acts, we see a change. It's no longer, you know, a uh, second person uh, uh, you know, references and pronouns. It's no longer the, uh, they and them or you. Now it is we and us. In chapter 16, in the second missionary journey, Apostle Paul comes to Troas, and here's where he apparently meets this person who is yet unidentified, but now he includes himself in the storyline. And from that point of the book of Acts, you see it be we and us. He's now traveling with Paul. And so who is that guy who now is part of Paul's contingent? When you look at the other books of Paul, you see that all of a sudden somebody new appears, and his name is Luke, the doctor, the physician. In fact, what you begin to see through Paul's writings is that Luke very quickly becomes Paul's right-hand man. You know, Paul comes to Troas, it's Suppose that perhaps Luke was one of these God-fearing Gentiles that you read about in the book of Acts. In other words, somebody who had converted to Judaism and was attending the synagogues. Clearly, Luke has a strong knowledge of the Old Testament. Clearly, he was a God-fearer. And so you think that at some point, perhaps under Paul's ministry in the synagogue, Luke is converted. And over time, he becomes indispensable to, to the Apostle Paul's ministry. He travels with him for years on the different missionary journeys. He's with him when Paul is in prison, whether it's house arrest or in Rome in the final days of Paul's life. And he's a valued assistant to the Apostle Paul. 
Uh, the book of Luke, as I mentioned, is the longest book in the New Testament. Acts is right behind it. It's thought that, uh, as I mentioned, he had to break it up into two parts. And what you see in both of these books is somebody who is very well educated. He has excellent credentials. He had, uh, as a doctor, he had the best, like Paul, the best education available at that time. And his prose reflects it. I would have loved to have be able to be in a, a time machine and go back in history. I wonder if, you know, if we could be a fly on the wall in like one of those cells or in the house when they're under house arrest or where they're just traveling. If, you know, we would not see at night uh, in that room that the sound of quill on parchment is really loud because, you know, on one side there's the Apostle Paul and he's writing letters to different churches. And on the other side, here's Dr. Luke and, and he's writing something on parchment Maybe Paul turns to, to Luke and says, hey, how's that Theophilus project going that you've been commissioned to write? You know, And hey, it's going good. It's going good. It's running longer than what I thought, like Jerry's sermons. And uh, <laughs> we're gonna, I'm going to have to make it volume two, it looks like. He goes, what are you writing? Paul, why are you writing another letter to the Corinthian church? What have they done this time? You know, I just wish we could be a fly on the wall to have in, seen that in exchange with them. But Dr. Luke, invaluable to the Apostle Paul, and as if many suppose that he uh, wrote the, the book of Hebrews too, he's overwhelmingly the, uh, the most represented person in the New Testament of all the New Testament writers. He's the top with just Luke and Acts. If you throw in Hebrews also, he, he's got, he just even you know, crushes the Apostle Paul. Incredible guy. So let's look at him as a historian, though. Not just as a doctor, but a historian. He writes in verse 1 in a form and a, and a method that everybody in the ancient world would have known. The minute they began to read this book, they would have known we are not reading a fiction book. We are reading a history account, a historical narrative. The Apostle, uh, Luke takes the exact form that ancient historians like Thucydides and uh, Lucian and other uh, classical historians and he takes the exact same form, exact same methodology, and he starts the book. So he's putting out a, a, a notice to everyone. I'm giving you a historical narrative. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. You see, the, uh, Luke was very different than Matthew, Mark, and John. Matthew, Mark, and John were eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry. Luke was not. Luke is more like us. He had received the stories through the curated oral traditions that you know, the Middle East and especially the Israelites and Jews, they excelled in passing down stories from generation to generation. There had been gospel accounts written. The book of Mark, for example, was the first and was very early where the life of Jesus was put down. But Luke didn't see these events himself. And so instead, he takes the approach of a historian. And in our days, we might call him an investigative reporter. He says, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to go to the very beginning. In other words, I'm going to go back to John the Baptist and, the, and the, the stories of his birth and Jesus, and I'm going to verify the facts. Maybe he was like a, a modern-day fact-checker, right? We, we hear about these all the time. 
And his methodology that he puts in place is very sound from an investigative historical perspective. He goes back and he says, I talk to the preachers of the gospel. We think this is a reference to the apostles, many of whom would have still been alive when Luke composed this book. Uh, he, he talked to deacons and to maybe that core group in the church of Jerusalem. What's interesting about the book of Luke is he gives details about, for example, Mary and the women in Jesus' life that none of the other gospels give. It's evident that he either talked to Mary and those women or he talked to people who were close associates with those women because he ends up giving us 30% more details of the life of Jesus and the people that were involved in Jesus' life than Matthew, Mark, and John do. So we, he, we're indebted to him for insight into the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus that we do not get in any of the other Gospels. And so he says, I went and I talked to the people who saw these events and I got their account and I validated what we have been told orally or what we have read. And by the way, here's some other things that I uncovered. When did he have done that? Well, the apostle Paul was imprisoned in Palestine for over two years at one point. And it's supposed that during that time, Luke was with him, he would have had easy access to these individuals. Remember, Paul writes in Corinthians, 500 witnesses saw all these things, most of whom are still alive today. And so Luke was able to interview these people in, in a very uh, methodical manner. He says, I'm going to give you an orderly account. He grounds the events of Jesus' life in literal history. So, for example, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, he gives six different verifiable historical markers from secular history that help you establish the time of when these events took place through his preciseness and composition. The accuracy of his work from a historical perspective and his attention to detail is attested by many modern uh, historians and archaeologists. For example, back at the end of the eight, uh, uh, 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, there was a famed archaeologist, Sir William uh, Ramsey. He was the foremost historian and archaeologist in about Asia Minor and Israel-Palestine. He had won every possible award that you could win. He was recognized. He was knighted. He was all of these things that he received for his work in archaeology and history and in uncovering uh, you know, the truths of the ancient world. Interestingly, he started his career as an agnostic. He was skeptical. He, he studied in Germany at a time when German thought began to, to prime the pump for much of what we saw of the rejection of the historicity and the theology of the scriptures. And so William Ramsey went into his career believing that the Bible was filled with myths and that what it said about Asia Minor and ancient, that it was just, you know, factually incorrect. Over time, as he began to explore and he began to, to do his career and gain the accolades that came with it, he began to realize something that what was in the scriptures was actually accurate. And over time, he moved from being an agnostic to where he committed his life to Christ. And he wrote about this in a book 
telling his story. And one of the things he said about Luke specifically and the details that are in the book of Luke and especially the book of Acts, he says, further study showed that the book could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world and that it was written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians. He would go on to write that you can trust whatever it is that Luke tells you. So his credentials as a historian are clear, as a doctor, but he's somewhat of a Renaissance man, this Dr. Luke. He's also a masterful storyteller. Verse 1, he says, I have undertaken to compile a narrative. A narrative. He gives us a story with compelling characters, a plot that builds anticipation, a setting that is exotic and real at the same time, not fanciful. And like any good story, you have this preliminary introduction of the main characters, and then the conflict begins to build at the center of the story until finally there's a climactic moment, and then it concludes with a satisfying resolution. So what he writes here, it's not a fictional story. It's grounded in history, and it's true and real, but we should not read it as a historical textbook thinking it's just these linear chronological events in Jesus' life. It's, it's more than just bare recitation of history. As R.T. France writes, he says, it's a theologically driven story, not a bare chronological history. He's showing how God's overarching story of redemption culminates in Jesus and finds its resolution through the spread of the kingdom as Jesus gives the Great Commission. So let's move on. From Luke, the author, I wanted to give you some background as to who we're reading and, and what he's all about. There's a reason why when you read, for example, Luke and Acts in the original languages, there's medical terms everywhere. He uses medical terms as analogies to the Christian life because he's a physician, he's a doctor, and God worked through him. But let's move on to the central theme of the book, which we find in verse 3, where Jesus is for everyone. It seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke is the gospel that is addressed to the Gentiles, and his message is meant to help uh, those of us who were not born as ethnic Israelites. Luke, better than any other of the Gospels, communicates that Jesus came to save people from all walks of life. And this is a, a joyous truth that is celebrated right from the beginning of the book where there are four different songs in the opening chapters from a variety of people who are rejoicing over Jesus. And why are they rejoicing over Jesus? Well, our takeaway truth this week is the reason. Because of Jesus, anyone who wants to be saved can be saved. Because of Jesus, anyone. And when I say anyone, I mean anyone. Luke's stories put before us the demon-possessed, the treasonous traitor, prostitutes, drunkards, thieves, the unjust, despised women, the mighty, 
the powerless, the poor, disregarded children, the Israelite, the African, the Persian, the Roman, the Greek. He, he gives us political conservatives, liberals, and radicals. In other words, he gives us our modern-day Republicans, Democrats, and Antifa types. Absolutely, they're in the book of Luke. He puts before us the diseased, the sick, the proud, the rich, the immigrant, the criminal, their victims, the religious, the destitute person, the privileged insider, the rejected outsider, the somebody in society, and a lot of nobodies in society. And he brings all of these to us and more, and we see how they are transformed into saved children of God through Jesus. More than any of the other gospels, Luke focuses on people from all walks of life who needed salvation, and they found that Jesus is the one who can truly save you, that Jesus is for everyone. And this leads us to the central theme of the passage or, or the purpose of the passage. And the passage is a, has a pastoral purpose to it. And that, pas, that purpose we find in verse 4, that you may have certainty. Certainty about what, Theophilus? Certainty about your salvation. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That expression, most excellent Theophilus, is intentional. It means that it's very likely that this man who he was writing to may have been a patron. It may be that Theophilus was a wealthy person who went to Luke and said, would you produce something for me that tells me what it is that I've believed in? But at the very least, it's likely that he was a, not only a Gentile, but he was in some role of government official within the Roman Empire. This expression, most excellent Theophilus, is an expression that you see Paul use with Festus, the governor, and with others. And so we believe that Theophilus, who is typically, you know, that's a Gentile name, is uh, likely a government official of some kind who was a new Gentile convert. And why do we believe that he was a new Gentile convert? Because of the word taught. In the original language, that word taught is equivalent to our English word, and we get our English word from it, to catechize. You see, in the early church, when someone came to Christ, especially as the decade, as the gospel began to move out of Israel and into the Mediterranean world and Gentile nations, when people would convert, they did not necessarily get baptized right away. You begin to see this more and more that baptisms within the churches were held on two primary days of the year, Easter Sunday or Pentecost Sunday. Now, they would make exceptions if you were like sick and you were going to die and you'd come to Christ and you wanted to be baptized. But otherwise, they reserved it for those two days. And in the time between your profession of faith and that day when you got baptized, they catechized you. In other words, you were given a mentor who would disciple you and teach you the basic understanding of who Jesus is, the doctrines of the faith, and they're testing to make sure that the person was sincere and they were able to commit to Christ with their eyes wide open, understanding who they were committing their lives to. And you see that in this verse 4. Luke, just as a reminder, Luke 
wrote the gospel in the dominant language of his day, which was called koine or common Greek. And so just as in English grammar, we have, uh, you know, where words are placed in a specific sequence, we do that in order to express intensity like adverbs and adjectives. The same thing happens in Greek, but it's different. They don't have adjectives and adverbs to communicate intensity or the central point of the verse. Instead, it's, it's word placement along that sentence. So the first word, the last word, those are the intense words. These are the purpose words. These are the words you got to pay attention to. And in verse 4, it's not the first word, it's the last word. And it's the word in our English translation, certainty. Certainty. Even though our translation doesn't have it as the last word, that's the last word in that sentence that Luke wrote. And that is communicating the purpose of this book, certainty. His purpose is to help Theophilus and, by extension, those of us who come on the heels of Theophilus, to have rock-solid certainty that we haven't made a mistake. I mean, think about Theophilus. He's committing his life to this person who he's never met, who he's heard about, and the very people who this person came to, the Jewish people, they rejected him. And I'm believing in him. Now, what, what do we make of that? And Luke is helping to resolve that tension. Okay, a lot of background there. And so this is the time when I think in the message we need to just stop and ask the important question. What's the important question? So what? That's right, so what? As Christians, let's start with those of you who are Christians. I think you can look at this passage and glean an important gospel application. That when we are telling the good news of Jesus, credibility matters. Credibility matters. Luke ensured that his methodology aligned with the very best historical practices of his time. And he was very transparent up front about how he went about gathering and creating this book. He dealt with Theophilus' doubts, not by denigrating them, not by using logical fallacies, not just by screaming over or glossing over his legitimate concerns. Instead, he deals with his doubts with sensitivity and compassion, and most importantly, with integrity. He did his work that should be done if he's going to write something like this. Church, integrity and evangelism are indispensable to one another. Daryl Balk wrote, Integrity is what produces authority because all other authority is short-lived and temporary. Our strength comes when our message and our life match. Think about Jesus. In, as we will see in the book of Luke, he is going to end up being accepted by some. He's going to be rejected by many. But even those who reject him, they were forced to seriously consider what he said simply because of the harmony between his life and his demeanor and his words. Because they matched, there was integrity. And people who have integrity have credibility, and we listen to them. Now, this, this is a sobering thought. 
And it can actually crush us with guilt or paralyze us from ever opening our mouths and telling the good news of Jesus unless, you know, unless we are really anchored in the gospel, living out of its truth and its power. Parents, take you for example. The humility and the transparency of the gospel encourages and empowers you to bring the good news of Jesus to your children even when you fall short due to your own sinfulness. Every parent, parent, every parent has had that experience when we are seeking to address the sin of our children and in doing so, we ourselves sin. Amen? Amen. We do. And so, it can cause us over time and draw back from addressing what's going on in our children's lives. Some people, some parents will not address what's going on in their teenager's life because they remember how they were with teenagers and it's like, I just feel so hypocritical and I can't address this. But you see, the gospel gives us the ability to address that sinful behavior with integrity and credibility. Yes, parents, you are going to sin even as you're addressing the sins of your children. And so you have a choice. You can go the route of the Pharisee and be hypocritical and pretend it didn't actually happen, or you can go the way of the gospel, which is to be transparent and authentic with your children and confess that sin to them and not cover it and hide it. And you can do that because your sins have been covered and hidden under the blood of Jesus Christ. And I promise you that if you deal with your sin honestly and openly with your children, you will have credibility and integrity with your children and they'll listen to you as you speak into their life as a fellow traveler who sins and needs the grace of God. As you're able to explain to your children Mommy is a sinner. Daddy's even bigger sinner. Okay, I had to throw that in. But you get the idea? Amen. See? And your children will be better for it. Hey, students, I understand what it's like to keep my mouth shut at a time when I wanted to say something about Christ because... I had messed up in front of those same people at some point. But I'm here to tell you, whether you're in junior high, high school, college, every day you walk in a mission field among the population that is most likely to listen and consider Jesus. You can represent Jesus with integrity by being transparent and humble about your own struggles and then testifying to your friends and your classmates how you need God's grace every day and that you are not accepted by God by how perfect you are, but you're accepted by God by how perfect Jesus is and that he's helping you. And sometimes you're, you do the right thing and other times you blow it. But God loves you anyway because Jesus did not blow it. Church, gospel humility about our sinfulness is what maintains integrity 
and credibility so that we can speak the truth of Jesus out of that very weakness. And when we do that, it's Jesus and our Heavenly Father who's filled with grace and love for us that gets the glory, not our perfection or abilities, because we're leading and speaking out of the truth of our weakness. So there's application here for us, Christian. Credibility matters when we're telling the good news of Jesus. Seekers, those of you who maybe you're on the continuum and you're looking, you have doubts, and I'm so glad that you are here this morning in our church. I want you to know we are a church that isn't threatened by people who have doubts. You can be agnostic like William Ramsey, or you're a Christian and you're struggling. What do I? It's okay. It's okay. Let me, let me apply this passage to you maybe with an image this morning. This is a picture of a stained glass from a, a medieval church. You know, in the in the, the centuries of the church's existence, most of that time, people were illiterate. The majority of people were illiterate. Like 80, 90% were illiterate until the Enlightenment when it began to turn around. And so one of the ways that people were taught the Bible and they learned the Bible was the, the stained glass within the church. Okay? And no, we're not having stained glass in the new church because you're literate. Okay? Right? <laughs> And so there would be pictures throughout the, the church of different biblical events and the life of Jesus. And most churches had a pain that was representative of the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what you see on that picture is these winged people. Like, like Matthew is always represented by a winged man. Now, the wings are, go to Revelation, the, the four winged creatures in the book of Ezekiel. There's some theological you know, tie-ins there. But the consistency here is there's this man. And he represents Matthew because Matthew's concern was the human lineage. That's what he opens up with Jesus and the genealogies, trying to show that if you're looking, trying to see the, the winged man is the one at the top middle there, okay, with the hands, and he's got little wings on him. Some of you are looking like, what are you talking about? There, that's him, okay? And, and Matthew, he's concerned with Jesus' human lineage as the king of the Jews, um, the lion that's up there with wings, that's the book of Mark because his book opens up with John the Baptist, you know, roaring out of the wilderness with his message to repent. And the book is dealing with the royal dignity of Christ as king of all humanity, not just the Jews. John is the eagle. And the reason why is that he flies, his book flies higher than all of the others. And he brings in philosophical and theological concepts that are so deep and profound that even the wisest theologians and philosophers are challenged by them. Luke, he's on the left side here, and it is a bull or an ox. You see, as we'll see next week, the book of Luke opens up at the temple where the sacrifices of the bulls and the oxen are still being done for the forgiveness and the atonement of sin. But as the book unfolds, these bulls and these oxen are replaced by the perfect lamb of God because it's in the book of Luke that we read, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 
And so if you're here this morning and you're looking for answers, uh, these doubts that you have, and you don't know about what your destiny is for all of eternity, I am glad you're here. And yet you're willing to ask these questions. And we would love to engage with you in conversation. And how you do that is you can come see me after the church service. You can go to any of our pastors. You can go to the care area where we have pastors and and elders and Stephen ministers who are happy to sit down and talk with you any Sunday. This is available to anybody who has questions and doubts. Church, the story of Jesus, it's not religious fiction. It's historical fact. And these opening verses are a profound example of the mystery of how God's inspired word works. Luke was not a robot just dictating what Jesus told him. It's clear that the Holy Spirit, as he indwelt these writers of Scripture, he used their personalities, he used their gifts and their abilities, and he superintended everything that was written so that at the end of the day, we can trust this love letter that we have from God that he uses different individuals to compose. And as it relates to Luke... His love letter is a gospel for anyone. It's a good news for anyone who wants to know Jesus better. Some of you have never really met him. And I hope over the next however many weeks that changes for you. Most of you, you have met Jesus. But as you know, with any relationship, over time, the intensity and the depth and the intimacy of that relationship can be threatened and it can decrease instead of increasing. And my hope as we go through the book of Luke is that for all of us, his God, this gospel deepens our love of Jesus and it gives us a great hope as it shows Jesus is for everyone who wants a sense of certainty about the most important question in life. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at this opening passage of Scripture. I'm sure these words hit everyone differently. I pray, Lord, for the one who's seeking answers and is considering whether Christ is that answer to what's going on in their life. I thank you for bringing them to us this morning. May they find in our fellowship a love and acceptance and a safe place for them to ask their questions. May they not be afraid and intimidated. May they know that We will not reject them or criticize or treat them uh, cynically because all of us at one time or another have had similar questions that we've had to work through. So make us a church where those who have questions feel comfortable coming. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.